Now go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 26 is where we are at in our series through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, it's been an, uh, an amazing, epic time. My name's Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption. It's my honor and privilege to be able to serve you in the scriptures. I love being able to gather every week to open the Bible, to read through what God's word has to say, and just to, to, to take from it. The, the word, maybe the church word that you've heard is gleaning. Um, if, you, if you're not like somebody who works in fields, you have no idea what gleaning is. Gleaning in a field is to go out and to take the things that have grown up in the field. Uh, that, that's what you do. It's kind of like harvesting. Uh, and so uh, there's a church term that we glean from the scriptures. It means that we, we spend time in God's field, in God's word, and we, we look for him to impart to us his life his life-giving word. And so that's what we do uh, here every week at Redemption, and it's my honor and privilege to be able to do that. 1 Samuel chapter 26 is where we are at together today. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, there's one in front of you in the pew there. You can grab that, or you can open up your smartphone or tablet to the YouVersion Bible app and find the event, and uh, you'll be able to follow along there as well. Have you ever experienced a time in your life when you were being tempted to sin? You're like, yep, that was on the way to church this morning. Um, but, but you were aware, you were aware that you were being tempted, and you were able to face that temptation with God's strength and with his ability to fight it, and you overcame the temptation. Do you, can you think of a time like that? Now, these times are harder for us in our lives because we typically think of the times when we failed. It's easier to go that way. It's easier to think of, well, there were all these temptations and I've, I jumped off the cliff and I broke things and I had to live with the consequences of that. That's easier for us to grasp than it is to think of the things or remember the times when God came through, when he came through for us in a huge way and I submitted to the Lord and he caused me to be able to, uh, to withstand this temptation. There are amazing and powerful times in our lives. And right before Jesus uh, began his public ministry, he fasted for 40 days and nights. If you remember that in the Gospel of Matthew, also in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, in both Gospels, they tell about this time. Jesus fasts, okay? And at the end of the fast, Satan comes to tempt Jesus, and Jesus weathers the storm. Three powerful, incredible, crazy temptations come against Jesus. He weathers through the storm. And we have a lot of, of insights into this interaction between Satan and Jesus as to peering into the, the sort of uh, spiritual warfare realm of things, into demonic tactics, if you want to call it that. What are the kind of tactics that are going to come against you? There are lots of things that we can glean, <laughs> to use that word, to, that we can take from Jesus' interaction with Satan. But one of the big ones that I want to point you to is at the very end of Jesus interacting with Satan in Luke's account, it says this in Luke 4.13. It says, when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. You see that there at the very end of, of verse 13? When, how, how long did Satan leave Jesus alone? Until the next opportunity came. You see, Jesus weathers the temptation. He gets through the storm. He doesn't fall to the temptation of sin. And Satan leaves. Satan flees. That's what we're told in Scripture. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And how long does he stay away? Until the next opportunity comes. That, that he's just looking for an opportunity. So number, there's two things that I, I, I want to point out in this. Number one, he didn't leave for good. He was just looking for another opportunity. Sometimes we get through a temptation. We're like, yes, I made it. And, and then we wonder why things get hard again. Well, it's because Satan's looking for an opportunity. He doesn't leave for good. And just an aside, Satan probably has never dealt with you, right? He can only be in one place at one time on the planet. You've probably experienced some demonic kind of stuff. We're not important enough for Satan to even know who we are, okay? So there's other people he's messing with, but there are demons, there are satanic forces that are coming uh, against us in the spiritual realm. Um, and, and when we resist that, then they don't leave for good. But secondly is this, that we need to understand that, it, that we need to be careful to not give Satan more opportunities with my foolish choices, right? He's looking for an opportunity. I don't need to serve him up some really good opportunities. If you know that you struggle with, with alcohol, don't go driving by the bar, right? If you know that you struggle with, uh, with lust, don't get on the internet and type in words that you know are going to bring up stuff uh, that you don't want to see. Like there are things that you need to do to not create opportunities for Satan. He's already looking for them. So don't give him more 
opportunities. Here's the big way to say this. Discipline removes opportunity for opportunities. Right? Does that make sense? If, I'm, if I just create pathways of discipline, it removes opportunity for opportunities. Well, in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, David finds himself in a situation that's being used by both God and the devil as a way to either build him up or break him down. He's facing one of these moments. And it's not just a, a moment, it's actually a familiar moment. David's been here before, and he's going to go through the same thing again. So here's our big idea as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 26. It's this, God will test your faith to prove your character, while Satan will tempt your faith to destroy your character. That, that these two things are coming against you, this testing and this tempting. Now, we're going to break this uh, chapter down. We're going to look at the whole chapter, chapter 26, 25 verses. We're going to break it down together in two parts today, but we're going to look at it piece by piece because it's, it's a longer narrative. I could read it for you. I, try, I, I tested myself. I read it. It took me about four minutes, and, and I feel like you should be able to stand, withstand somebody reading the Bible to you for four minutes, but it might feel really long and you get lost. You just go to sleep, and then you wake back up, and when I say, okay, the first part, so I decided let's just go piece by piece, all right? So, <laughs> the first part, the first part is this, verses 1 through 12, a test implemented, and then the second part is verses 13 through 25, a temptation confronted. Let's pray, and we'll jump into it. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it, to, to see what your word has to say to us, and we ask, God, that as we look into chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, that you would help us to see you. That Jesus, we wouldn't get caught up in all the details of two old guys that died a long time ago, but that we would see Jesus. Lord, your word tells us that the, the entirety of scripture, it's written about you. And so I pray that we would be able to understand and know where you are in this chapter. That as we look at the details of what takes place, that you would unveil yourself to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, because God loves and cares for you, he will often turn up the heat in your life. It, it may not seem that way. And when he does, you're probably going to think that God's abandoned you. When the heat is turned up, when things are difficult. But the truth is that he is very present and very active in the middle of that difficulty, in the middle of that heat being turned up. Even if you can't feel him, he's active and presently there with you. Malachi chapter 3 verse 3 says this, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. See, Malachi chapter 3 tells us something really important about God. There's this imagery of God and his interaction with his people. In Malachi, the people have drifted away from God. We have an entire series in the book of Malachi on our website. Uh, you can check it out there or our YouTube channel and, and see that. Uh, but uh, the, the thing to grasp with this in, the, in this, this chapter 3 of Malachi is the people have wandered away. And God says, I am like this. And he gives them a picture. And he says that I am like a refiner. Now, the thing that a refiner does is they take um, some ore that they dig up out of the ground, whether it's silver or gold, and they stick it in a pot, and then they put a fire under the pot. That's what they do. Okay, now, they may do it a little bit differently, but that's the same basic concept as when it was then. Now, the refiner would tend to that pot. He would sit over the pot of of the gold or the silver, and he would look into it and, and wait for the right things to happen. Now, what he's looking to do is as you turn the heat up, what happens is that the dross or the impurities rise to the surface. And then he would take a, a stick or a piece of wood or something and scrape off the impurities. And then, you know what he would do? Add more wood to the fire to turn up the heat, to bring out more impurities. And often what happens is that God turns up the heat in your life and in my life. And when he's doing this, it brings things to the surface that we don't like. It brings impurity to the surface and you get to see it. And you're wondering, I'm so, I'm so confused. I'm so astounded. I'm, I'm so disgusted that there's this, this impurity was even in there. And, and we're, we're, we're wondering, how did it even get in there? God's, God didn't worry. He's not wondering how it got in there. He knew. He knew it was in there. 
It didn't catch him by surprise, even though it ca caught you by surprise. And so what does he do? He brings it to the surface, not to condemn you and say, look how filthy you are. Look how terrible you are. No, to scrape it off, to remove it, to get rid of it. And then he turns the heat up in your life again. Just when you thought, oh, everything's good, and I'm, I'm finally gaining some momentum, I'm gaining some purity in my life, and things are moving in a really great way, and then the heat turns back up, and that thing comes bubbling to the surface again, and then we're, we're so distraught over it. Oh, God, why is that even in there? Well, it's in there because that's part of our fallen nature. There is more depravity within your heart and soul than you might be aware and God is willing to sit over your life intimately connected to you to bring those things up. Why? To get rid of them. See, God hasn't abandoned you when the heat is turned up. He's actually with you. He's sitting over your life, engaged in all of this process. You see, he cares, so he turns up the heat. Here's the, here's the key concept in all of this. Many times, the difference between where you are and where you want to be is the painful situation you're avoiding. Many times that's the truth. You want to be further. You want to go down the road of life further. You want to experience God use you in miraculous and supernatural and powerful ways. You want to experience purity in your life. You want to be uh, taken outside of the norms and the daily routines of things. You want to go further. You want to go deeper. You want to see just crazy things God could do with your life. And yet we retreat into comfort. We won't let the heat get turned up. And as soon as it does get turned up, we're trying to figure out some way to put some water on it or some way to take a pill for it to stop it or whatever it is. We're, we're trying to avoid the heat. We're trying to avoid the pain. We're trying to avoid the pressure. And what happens? We remain the same. And we actually get worse. Because one of the big things in, in spiritual, uh, spiritual life, a spiritual truth, is you're either growing or dying. You're not staying stagnant. So by staying stagnant, we actually go backwards. You see, Jesus is the one sitting over your life, carefully crafting and turning up the heat to bring the, the purity into your life by removing the impurities. He loves you enough to do this work. And here's the second thing. The maturity that you possess dictates the depth to which he'll go. There are some things he can turn the, the uh, heat up in your life on today that you couldn't handle last year or five years ago, or 10 years ago. So when that stuff comes up and it really surprises you, you're like, that is scary that that was in there, and I know that that's been in there for a long time. The reason you're seeing it today and you didn't see it then isn't because you're broken. It's because God is so kind that he didn't even show you until you could handle it. What an amazing God that we serve. What an amazing God that would do that with us. And here in chapter 26, David's having the heat turned up in his life as he faces a test and a temptation it's one that he's actually already overcome. So let's look at this first part together, a test implemented, verses 1 through 12. 1 Samuel 26, 1 says this, Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakalah, opposite Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 uh, chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. And David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. See, as this narrative opens, it probably sounds familiar to you if you've been with us through 1 Samuel. You're probably thinking, didn't we read exactly this uh, not too long ago? The answer is absolutely right. Yes, that is exactly what we've read before. In chapter 23, verse 19, uh, we saw that David is betrayed by the, the people of Ziph, and Saul is in pursuit. And then in chapter 24, we saw that uh, Saul brings 3,000 men to pursue David. We've already read this. We've already gone down this path before. And so Saul regathers these 3,000 man elite force, and he, he comes uh, not in defense of Israel, not to defeat the enemies of God, but to hunt down David. That, that's what he uses the, these, this elite force of men for. And, and, and what does he do there in, in verse, uh, verse 2? He seeks David in the wilderness of Ziph. And David and his men, they would easily have spotted 3,000 men, right? You can't you can't travel with 3,000 people through, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
any, any place without making a lot of noise. And in this time, it was all dirt roads, right? Nothing's paved, so there's a lot of dust coming up out of the ground. And so the scouts would have spotted David. David's scouts would have spotted Saul's men afar off, and they would have known that they are coming. And so they easily uh, spot them. And David wants to verify exactly who this is. Look at verse 3. It says this, um, But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw Saul came after him, uh, into the wilderness. And David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. You see, it's, it's almost as if the language here lends, it, lends this, us to this idea that uh, David didn't want to believe that it was actually Saul. That, that as this, this big troop, this big mass of troop is coming into the wilderness. They're coming right to where David's at. They're encamped not that far away. They're there that David doesn't want to believe that it's Saul. And so he sends some men and they, they verify, yeah, it's Saul. And then David himself wants to go see, is this really who, who it is? Is it actually Saul? It's as if he didn't want to believe it could be Saul because remember in chapter 24, verse 16, that Saul was weeping when David didn't kill him in the cave. When David cut the robe of Saul and didn't kill Saul, that, that Saul was, was weeping to David and saying, oh, forgive me, you're a better man than I am and God's going to give you the kingdom. And there's this seeming repentance that Saul has. There's this seeming change of heart that Saul has. And if you remember at the end of that chapter, that Saul went back home, but David stayed in the wilderness. He, he wasn't sure if he could trust Saul. And now here we are a couple of chapters later, and the exact same thing is happening again. The very same sin that Saul perpetuated before, he's there again. You see, it seemed like sincere repentance, but David uh, wasn't sure that it would be. John Corson says it like this, although Saul chucked spears at him, caused problems for him and showered hatred or excuse me showed hatred toward him David still wanted to believe the best about Saul yet David was wise enough to find out the facts so as not to jeopardize the lives of his men so the men stay hidden and he wants to find out is this true is this really Saul is he actually coming to hunt me again i mean we just we just went past this uh, but here we are and David uh, has shown Saul supernatural love not by just not killing him before, but now he's showing him supernatural love in this moment by refusing to believe the worst about Saul. He, he just refuses. I will not believe the worst about Saul. And he won't do it until he's left with no other option, no other choice. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says it like this. Speaking of love, it says that it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you see that definition of love? There are a number of things that are stated here in verse 7 that I think are powerful things. And if you can get this for your relationships, it will transcend everything else that you've experienced in life. That this is where the key to, to loving people in a deep way is. Men, love your wives this way. Wives, love your husbands this way. This is the, the thing for us to grasp. Notice it says there, it bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I want to pick one of those, believes all things. This is the kind of love that David is showing towards Saul. Believes all things is to say, I'm believing the absolute best. I, I will choose to believe the best until I have no other option and I'm forced to believe something else. This is the, the kind of relationship that David is willing to have with Saul. Even though Saul has attempted to kill him numerous times, personally, individually, hunted him down with scores of men over and over again, setting him up in terrible situations and scenarios and abandoning him. And yet David shows this kind of love to Saul. It's to say, I'm going to believe the best in you until I have no other options. And then when you prove me wrong, then I'll have to set some things in place. And so it's confirmed, verse five. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay with, uh, within the camp with the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, the brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night and there... 
Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head, and Abner and the people lay all around him. It's confirmed uh, that this is Saul. And so David wants to go see for himself, and he takes a couple of guys with him and, and to a spot where they can overlook the camp of Saul, and they see all of the men there. It's at night. Everyone is, is there sleeping, and, and it's, it, it, what they see is that it's impossible to get to Saul. See that there in verse 5? That Saul's in the middle of the camp, and the 3,000 men are camped all around him. So no matter what angle David is to go at, he's going to have to go through about 1,000 guys just to get to Saul, but he spots him. He says, there he, there he is. I can see him very clearly right in the middle of the camp. And this moment, I believe, is the moment where God puts the test into David's life. Because David decides something rash and ridiculous. He says, hey, let's go in the camp. Like, why, why would you think that? Like, who in their right mind notices 3,000 elite men there to murder you? That's the one thought that's on their mind. Kill David. And I'm sure these guys are like, let's just kill this guy and go home because I hate wandering around out here in the wilderness. It's hot. This guy Saul's a crazy guy. I just want to go home to my wife and my kids and just, you know, live my life. And so they're out there doing this. Let's just get this job done. And so David's like, hey, let, this seems like a great idea to go there. Let's go in there and hang out with those guys. Like, why in the world would he do that? Well, I believe that God actually put this thought into David's mind, that God dropped this, this concept into David's heart, and it was a test that God was putting into David's life. He puts an impossible suicide mission into David's heart, and then Abishai says, hey, sign me up. I want to go too. That sounds like a lot of fun. Let's go hang out down there and see what's going on. And so they wander through, and they carefully make their way through this, these thousand men or so to, in order to get to where Saul is, and they make their way there. And they find Saul laying there, and his general, Ab uh, um, uh, not Abishai, Abishai is the guy that was with him, uh, Ahimelech, yeah, is there, thank you, uh, with, with Saul laying there near him, and then there's a spear stuck in the ground. Now, I think this moment was a, a huge moment for David. I mean, think about that spear in David's life. That spear had been thrown at him by Saul multiple times. It was, it was three to four times, something like that, that the spear had been thrown at David. And it was the, the, that spear was the last thing that came whirling at him and plunged into the wall as he left that palace and never returned. This is, this is sort of what sent him into exile. It's, it's like an image of what sent him into exile. And now here it is, stuck in the ground right next to Saul. I mean, what would you be thinking if you were in this situation? Are you going to throw that at me, bro? I'm, let me show you how to use it. You're not very good with this, but I can tell you how to use it, right? And, and Saul's in this incredibly vulnerable position, isn't he? He's asleep. He has no way of knowing that danger is right there upon him. He has no way of knowing or, or being able to defend himself whatsoever. And so David sees this spear, and this, this test now also becomes a temptation. He's totally asleep and totally unaware. Verse 8. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. Man, I need a friend like that. Verse 9, um, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are beside his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away, and no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. See, now we see that the scenario is, is, it's not just this random thing that's taking place. God is actually setting it up. That David was able to sneak in there undetected, not just because he's a really good ninja, but because God actually placed a deep sleep on these guys. There, there's no way that they're going to wake up. That David could very easily have killed Saul with no problem whatsoever, and no one would have known, and David would have gotten away. You see, Saul is extremely vulnerable and, and completely unaware, and Abishai... He sees this situation in this very same way that David's men saw the situation in the cave. 
If, you're, if you remember, if you were with us, when David was in the cave and Saul went in to relieve himself, he had to take a potty break, that his men said, look, God has delivered him into your hands. Just go kill him and it'll all be over. Abishai does, this, this, does the exact same thing. He looks at the situation. He says, look, God has delivered him into your hand. Let's kill him and it'll all be over. Both situations and both times, the men see that God is the one orchestrating it, but they interpret it completely wrong. They were right. God orchestrated this. The odds of this happening are impossible. And yet, and yet, it was not the reason that they thought. They misinterpreted why God was doing this. You see, many times the same situation or scenario will be used as a test from the Lord and a temptation from the enemy. James chapter 2 verses 1, uh, excuse me, James chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 say this. Oh my goodness. James 1, 2, and 3. I don't know how to read numbers. Um, It's written correctly. I just can't read. All right, James 1, 2, and 3 says this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. See, here's what it's saying here. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 is saying that God actually brings tests into your life. And that when your faith is tested, it has an opportunity to grow. That's exactly what's happening here with David. There's a, there's a chance for his faith in God to grow. But in the same chapter, chapter 1 of James, a little bit further down in verse 13, it says this. And remember, when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. You see, though God will administer a test in your life, he will never bring temptation into your life. That's a vital thing for you to grasp. God is never dangling the carrot in front of you to try to get you to bite it or get you to jump off the cliff and just do crazy. That's just not the way that God works. God is never tempting you. He's not himself tempted and he will never tempt you. But God will absolutely test you. And there will be situations in your life that you will face, just like David is in right here, where he's in this moment as a test from God and a temptation from the enemy. He's being tempted by the enemy to just end this whole thing and take the easy way out. Testing comes from God, but temptation never does. You see, some some interesting things about a test is that a test reveals what you truly know, doesn't it? I mean, think about, uh, you know, you're at school and you're taking a test and, you know, the, the, the teacher gives you the test. The test isn't for the teacher to know what you know. The test is for you to know what you know. That's the point of the test. The teacher probably already knows what you know. They just want you to know what you know. They want you to solidify that stuff. And so the test is administered. Number one, it reveals what you know, but it is also, two, purposefully difficult to pass. It's not going to be easy. The, the point of a test isn't for you to just know all the answers and breeze through it. The point of the test is to stretch you, to push you, to, to, to make it a little bit difficult for you to be able to go through. And thirdly, a test does not include the teacher's help. You don't get to ask the teacher questions. You don't get to, you don't get to say, hey, can you, can you remind me how to do this math equation? You don't get to say that in that moment. The test is being implemented. And so sometimes when God's implementing a test, we can feel like he's distant. We can feel like he's away. We can feel like he's not answering my prayers. We can feel like he's not pressing near. But it doesn't mean he's abandoned you. He's absolutely near. He's turning up the heat in your life, and he's sitting over you to scrape the dross away, to bring purity into your life, to strengthen your faith. And you can trust him that even though it hurts and even though it's hard, he hasn't left you. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left David he hasn't, he hasn't taken him out of this. You see, temptations not only come from enemies like Saul, enemies like, like Satan, but sometimes they come from overzealous friends like Abishai, right? I love the way he says it. Hey, d- just say the word. I mean, imagine you're sitting there. How are they having this dialogue, by the way? Like, are they whispering? Are they, are they writing it down? You know, are they texting each other? How's it going? They're, so they're there talking, okay, about this. And he says, just sit, just sit. David, you don't even have to say it. Just nod or just have a non-response. I will take the spear. I will pin Saul to the ground. He will die instantly. And I won't have to hit him twice. Like that is, 
he knows what he's doing. Like, he knows how to kill people, right? This is an assassin. <laughs> he's an assassin friend. And so uh, I think it's his cousin, actually, something like that. So um, he, he says, let's do this. I mean, imagine the immense pressure and temptation that David must be feeling in this moment. He has to actively say no. He can't do nothing, or that's going to give him the green light. He can't just sort of nod or, or be unclear. He has to press against it. You see, the thing that makes temptation what they are is that they entice desires that are already in you. That, that's how temptations work. There, there are things that may tempt me that would never tempt you. And vice versa, there may, think, may be things that tempt you that would never tempt me because the desire has to be living within you. Alistair Bregg says this, the strategy of the evil one is to inflate us in order to defeat us. The pattern of God is to deflate us in order to exalt us. What an incredible idea. You see, this single situation contains both. And usually that's the way that it goes. And so David is, verses 9 through 12, he's committed to two things. Number one, that Saul is in this position because God put him there. He's the anointed of the Lord. Notice he says that in verse uh, 9. Who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed? We, we can't do this. He's been anointed by God. We can't, we can't do this thing. And secondly, if, if he's going to be taken out, it's not going to be by David. It's going to have to be by the Lord. He says in um, verse 10, if he's, you know, for, David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him. God can take him out. Or his day shall come to die. He'll just get old and die one day. Or maybe he's going to go into battle and he'll perish that way. But I'm not going to be the one that does it. See, David is committed to these ideas. He's not going to be the one that removes Saul, and he's not going to be the one, uh, and, and that God is the one who's anointed him. You see, David has a, a, a very near experience with God doing exactly this with Nabal in chapter 25. If you were with us last week, we looked at that. Chapter 5, verse 23, this guy Nabal ends up dying, excuse me, chapter 25, verse 38. He ends up dying because God took him out. He stopped David from, from uh, avenging himself, and then God took care of it. God, God you know, took him out of, out of the way, took an evil man out. And so David knows that if God wants to remove Saul, he could do it literally at any moment. And so he chose not to deliver himself from his problem and submitted to the way of sacrifice. And this whole idea points us not just to David, but to the son of David, to Jesus See, Jesus was in this similar kind of a situation where he could deliver himself. And instead of choosing to deliver himself, he chose the way of sacrifice. Here's how Matthew 26, 53 says it. Do you not, uh, don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? You see, Jesus here is talking with Peter, after Peter's trying to defend Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, a, a huge crowd has come, a mob has come to arrest Jesus, and Peter stands up and he hacks off some guy's ear, not because he's really great with a sword, because who really wants to, like, I'm going to get you, bro, I'm going to cut your ear off. Like, you, no, that's, he wasn't awesome with a sword, he missed, okay, that's what happened. He was trying to kill the guy, and he missed, all right? So then Jesus pops the guy's ear back on, and uh, then he turns to Peter and he says, listen, if I wanted to fight I could ask for thousands of angels to come and fight for me. They would decimate this whole planet. No problem. But that's not why I'm here. Instead of choosing to deliver himself, Jesus chooses the way of sacrifice. Why? Because choosing the way of sacrifice is the only way to redeem your soul. Choosing the way of sacrifice is the only way that Jesus can go to the cross to bleed and die to pay for your sin, for my sin, to, to cleanse us from our iniquities, our depravities, our sinfulness, our failures, our faults, the things that separate us from God, and to bring us into right relationship with God. Sacrifice was the only way that was going to happen. And so if Jesus defends himself, he doesn't choose that path, and we don't get salvation. But Jesus shows meekness and mercy, and that's what allowed him to take the way of sacrifice instead of self-preservation. Why? Because it purchased your and my salvation. And we find in verse 12, a supernatural sleep is why all of this was even possible. Okay, secondly, not only a test implemented, but a temptation confronted, verses 13 through 25. Look at verse 13, it says this. Now David went over to the other side and stood at the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, uh, do, you, uh, do you not answer, Abner? 
Then Abner answered and said, Who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in, all, in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord, the king. This, is, this thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. David puts some distance between Saul's army and himself. He, he escapes, he gets back out. And he goes over and he stands on a hill a pretty good distance between them and he, and he yells out. And he calls out to Abner, Saul's bodyguard, to wake him up and to get his attention. And, and as he's yelling out, they're, you know, they're sort of roused from sleep. They're wondering what's going on. And they, they, uh, they, they call back out. Uh, and, and Abner's like, what is going on? What are, you, what are you yelling for? What's happening? Who are you? And David's tone here in verses uh, 15 and 16, it's a little bit over the top and taunting. I mean, he questions the guy's manhood and basically calls him incompetent. Like, wow. Did you, did you see that? Um, he says, uh, verse 15, are you not a man? He's like, wow. All right. And who is like you in all Israel? I thought you were a tough guy. And then he says, you haven't guarded your Lord the King. He says, you're just, you're incompetent. Questions his manhood, calls him incompetent, kind of comes over the top at Abner in this crazy way. And, and to prove his claim uh, that he was there and he could have killed the, killed the king, David tells Abner to look for Saul's spear and jug of water. And, and I'm sure as Abner's looking around and he looks to his side where, where Saul was laying down and they are gone, his heart must sink in that moment. Oh no, what, is, what has happened? What is, what is going on? What's happening at, at this time? And how did, how did this even happen? I'm sure Abner was really worried. And David rightly says, you, you deserve to die for this. That you, it was your job to protect the king and you didn't do it. And David doesn't take the opportunity to kill Saul. Why? Why would David not do it? It's because his, far, his heart is full of mercy and forgiveness instead of murder and vengeance. That's what's in his heart. As David has been thinking about Saul, as David has been on the run, as, as David has been trying to evade Saul, hunting him down, what has he filled his heart with? Mercy and forgiveness. As he thinks about Saul and he thinks about the hardship that he's in, he doesn't think, man, if I just had the chance, if this guy was just, if his back was turned, if the right opportunity came, if he was maybe sleeping with a supernatural sleep, then maybe I would take him out. No, instead of, instead of murder and vengeance, he has mercy and forgiveness. Matthew 15, 19 says this, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, th uh, theft, lying and slander. You see, Jesus here is speaking in Matthew 15. And what he's telling us here is that, that the heart is the soil out of which all sin grows. Whatever sin is in your life, it's, it's inside of you. It's in your heart. Nothing else causes it. Nothing else produces it. It's not something external. It's not those mean people over there. Or if we just had a different president. Or if somebody didn't cut me off on the freeway. Or if my wife you know, brought me my coffee the way I like it in the morning. Or whatever it is. Like there's no, that, those things don't produce the evil inside of you. When you erupt and explode and nonsense comes out, that's because that's what's in you. And God shows you those things, not so that you can be beat up or not you can just say, well, that's just the way I am. No, it's so that he can remove those things from your life. That we'll confess them to him, we'll bring them to him. And that he will purify the soil of our heart. Verse 17, then Saul knew David's voice and said, is that your voice, my son David? David said, it is my voice, O Lord, uh, O King, my Lord, O King. 18, and he said, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? What evil is in my hand? Now, now, therefore, please let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept an offering. But if it's the children of men, may they be cursed by the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. 
Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. You see, though David was too far away to be recognized by sight, Saul hears his voice and recognizes his voice and says, Hey, David, is, is that you? Is that who I think it is? And see how he calls him my son? And interestingly, in this exchange, David does not refer back to Saul as my father when he, where he did before. The first time, he referred to Saul as my father. Uh, this time, he only refers to him as my Lord, as, as his title and position of being the king. This could be for a couple of reasons. One is, it could be that, uh, you know, David is recognizing this guy. I thought he was kind of like a father figure, but turns out he's a jerk. It could be that. It also could be we were given the information at the end of chapter 25 that Saul had given his wife away to somebody else. And so he's like, well, I guess I'm no longer your son-in-law. Who, who knows exactly what's going on? But David's relationship with Saul has transitioned from one uh, that was sort of personal to now being one that's purely uh, a sort of business kind of thing where he's honoring his position and title. And so Saul puts together this familiar voice and Saul's tone is one of compassion. And in this, David, his words show a tenderness and a brokenness that, that's within David's heart. Again, David is willing to see that this could be God's judgment. Did you see that there? He says in verse 19, now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. It's, it's quite possible, David says, it's my own sin that God is judging and he's using you, Saul, to do it. It's quite possible that I'm, I'm the problem and I'm the issue. And if that's true, then let me offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Let me make it right. And then he goes again and he, and he says, but if it's, the, if it's somebody else, if it's the children of men, then those guys should be accursed because there isn't anything evil within me. And here David is extending this grace to Saul by giving him the, the benefit of the doubt again, saying that it's not Saul's idea. It's got to be somebody else poisoning your mind, Saul. But the truth is it's Saul's, it's Saul's thoughts. It's Saul's idea. It wasn't anybody else's. And I'm sure David even knew that. And yet he's trying to give Saul an easy way out trying to give him an opportunity for repentance. But David is under immense pressure. You see that at the end of verse 19? He says, For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go worship other gods. D David is saying that there's so much pressure on me from you that, that I'm being forced to choose whether or not I remain in the, the place of, the, uh, of uh, my people if I remain in this, this land that God has given to his people, my homeland, and live among God's people, and I'm being forced to choose to go off to a, a foreign land, I'm, that that's the only place I'm going to be safe. David is under crazy amounts of pressure. And, and in verse 20, it says this, this thing that maybe you and I look at and we're like, okay, whatever. He says, uh, he says that you're seeking me as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. I'm willing to bet you haven't hunted partridges in the mountains. Anybody gone partridge hunting? <laughs> Bob, you don't count. Um, so partridge, okay, so for those of you who don't know what a partridge is, it, it's a small bird. It's actually sort of in the quail family. If you know what a quail is, it's the idea of kind of what a partridge is. And if you know anything about quail, they run on the ground right? They, don't, they, don't, they can fly, but they don't fly, okay? And, and when they do fly, they have this really cool sound. Anyway, um, but they fly for a short burst, and then they land, and then they run again, okay? That's what a partridge does. That's how a partridge uh, does this. Now, one of the, what they used to do, one of the ways they used to hunt partridges in the mountains is you would just put pressure on the partridge. It would fly for a short burst, and then it would land again. Then you would go over to it, get it to fly again, and it would land again. And eventually, because they're not designed to fly, even though they can fly, they would just get really tired. And then you could literally walk up to them and just kill them. That, that's how it would work. And so David is saying, I'm, I'm feeling like a partridge, Saul. All this pressure you're putting on me, I'm, I'm running away, and I'm, I'm just narrowly escaping, and I'm getting away, and it's wearing thin on my soul. I feel myself wearing thin is what David's saying. I, I just don't want to run anymore. I just, I don't want to do this anymore, and I feel like it's, it's all crashing down upon me. Can you hear David's desperation? He's tired of running. And Saul answers in verse 21, and 
He says, I've sinned, return my son David, for I'll harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Now, interestingly, Saul states this, and he says that he's played the fool and he's erred exceedingly. And this is an extremely accurate accounting of of Saul's rule here. But let let me ask you this. Is there anything wrong with what Saul says in verse 21? Is there anything, you know, false about it? No, it's, it's accurate. It's very accurate. Let me ask you a second question. Do you believe him? <laughs> That's a different question, right? Like, uh, I've heard this before, bro. Like, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. And really, you know, it's even less. It's a little bit more callous this time. There's, no, there's not even weeping taking place. There was before. Now he's saying, oh, I've sinned. And there's this dramatic thing that's taking place. And yet, there's, you know, there's no reason to actually trust that this guy is going to do what he says. Now, Something interesting about this, in Saul's, uh, excuse me, in Paul, in Paul's first recorded sermon, in Acts chapter 13, he references King Saul. In Acts 13, 21, it says this, then the people begged for a king and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, notice this part, who reigned for 40 years. Interesting detail that we're given from Paul, the apostle, about Saul's reign, that, that, uh, Saul reigned for 40 years. Now, 40 in the Bible is a number of testing and judgment. That's, that's what the number represents. You remember, you know, Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights? A time of testing. Remember that uh, the ark was, uh, you know, it rained for 40 days and nights? A time of, of judgment. So that's the idea of the number 40 in the scriptures. And Saul's rule for Israel, it's a test for David and it's a judgment for Israel. Remember, Israel asked for a king. They begged for a king, and God gave them the king that they wanted in Saul, and it was a judgment from God. And yet this 40-year time span of the rule of Saul is also a test for David. Verse 22, David answered and said, here's the king's spear. Um, Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. May uh, you, all, you shall both do great things also, uh, and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Saul sounds just like before. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's shorter. It's lacking the previous emotion. But he says all the right words. And yet David doesn't trust him. His response in verse 22 is to ask for a kid to come grab the spear for Saul. Hey, send a kid over to grab this stuff. He doesn't even engage with Saul in, all, in this false repentance. He just says, hey, come grab the spear. Warren Wearsby says, says it like this. When David cut Saul's robe in the cave, he reminded him that his kingdom would be severed from him. But in taking the spear, he humiliated the king and robbed him of the symbol of his authority. That spear was like a scepter. And as, as he took it away, it was as if David was saying, this is actually something that belongs to me and does not belong to you. In verses 23 and 24, David states that he spares Saul's life because he wants God to treat him with the same mercy that he has shown, shown Saul. And there are times in the future when you look at David's life, when God shows him tremendous mercy, crazy amounts of mercy. Why? Well, I think it's because of the mercy that he showed Saul. Matthew 7, 2 says it like this. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Even though this wasn't written yet, this is the principle that guided David's life. And he says, I'm going to treat you with mercy, hoping and investing in it that the Lord would treat me with mercy as well. Now, this is the final encounter between Saul and David. This is the last time they're going to see one another before Saul dies. And the, the, David's time of exile is going to soon come to an end as Saul will lose his life in battle. And yet, things are going to get harder for David from here. It's almost over, but the night is going to get darker for David. It's going to become more difficult. You undoubtedly are going to find yourself in a difficult situation. A time when the temperature is being turned up in your life. Maybe it's right now. Maybe God's turning up the temperature in your life. And maybe even he's going to turn up the temperature with something you've already faced before and you've already had victory in your life before. 
See, here's the big thing to grasp. The degree to which you can be victorious over sin is tied to the degree to which you will live in submission to Jesus. It is your daily, seemingly disconnected submission to Jesus that empowers you to overcome that thing in your life. It may seem like it's not something that you can, that, that even has anything to do with that sin or that problem or that issue, but it's your submission to Jesus in a broad way in your life, in every aspect of your life that empowers you to overcome those things. It's this general direction of your life. Simply stated, it's like this. You cannot defeat the flesh with the flesh. Does that make sense? Trying harder, thinking positive thoughts, just give me another run at it. That's not, you're not going to win that way. That's what the world preaches all the time. Just think nice things and then everything will just work itself out. That's nonsense. No, submit to Jesus and he'll work all the things out. It might even get harder, but things will be right. And you'll be able to honor the Lord with your life. That's the way to go. There's no amount of do better or try harder that you can self-help your way out of depravity. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. You've got to submit to Jesus. Here's how Galatians 2.20 says it. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So this life I live in the earthly body by trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's by trusting in the Son of God, crucifying your old life, not trying to keep it alive or use it to somehow win. No, it's dead and gone, and I'm submitted to Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse you of your sin, and only the resurrection life of Jesus can empower you to live a holy life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it, to see what it is that you have to say to us. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to submit to you, to stop trying to do life our own way, to stop trying to go the ways that we want to, to stop trying to make room for sin in our lives, thinking that things will just work out. Lord, help us to abandon ourselves and to pursue you wholeheartedly that we might be people like David, who can choose what's right and honorable and godly and cast ourselves upon your mercy. Lord, knowing that you care for us. We love you and we thank you for your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray.